Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello. I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we have the second part of a two-part interview that I call Just Call Me Robo. It's a conversation between myself and three Canadian Space Agency mission controllers who have all worked as callsign Robo in the International Space Station Mission Control. In the interview, you'll hear Tim Braithwaite, Danielle Cormier, and Mathieu Caron. We're going to pick up the interview at the point where we're talking about the International Space Station Assembly Mission, called 6A, that delivered the Canadarm2 to the space station. And things went well initially, but then later in the flight, some issues developed. Let's listen in. Well, now we need to talk about what, is, what, what parts were more of a challenge. Uh, a couple of days later, uh, the space station main computers started failing. One after the other. Yeah. There are three of them. It doesn't sound like a good thing. It is not. And of course, being the brand new item on station, at first they thought we were causing it. <laughs> of course they did. Yes. Of course they did. And 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 this Tim, this is this is kind of uh, you know, but this is it's worthwhile noting, right? That 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 was a it, it that was a logical thing. That was nothing about it being a Canadian arm or anything. It's just logic dictated that that's going to be one of the things you immediately think of is what changed and you know what's breaking our space station right you know it, it was it was an entirely logical question to ask we were a major component that tied directly into the the space stations the cnc the command and control system and we were we were you know operating on data buses that hadn't been used before so it was a good question to ask but we're all looking at ourselves looking at our system and it sure looks like it's operating perfectly normally, but the ISS, the, the hard drives on the main computers just kept failing. And they have, these, this is a triply redundant system. There are three of them. And it very, very tough. Nothing was working. They spent as part of the recovery, like, like a day trying to get it where they could turn on a light. And that was gonna be the indicator that they, they were in con partial control of their system again, wow. to be able to get wow. that command from the ground up into the system. But from our point of view, we had to adapt because the plan was changing. We've talked about the plan a few times. Yes. Um, yes. But our system looked like it was perfectly fine. And indeed at that point it was, but the, the plan was, was really a struggle. We had to uh, adapt our procedures because when it finally came to the to the walk off or the or the checkouts, the crew couldn't use the laptop on board because that tied into that main computer. But there were commands that we could send from the ground, and then they would they would select switches that only they could throw. Because again, this arm was sorry, this arm was designed in the shuttle paradigm where only the crew drive the arm with the hand controllers. Right. So so we. So probably if I'm, if it's, if it's like, I think it was, that means that there was a very busy planning shift before that orbit one shift um, where, where somebody figured out, I think we, sorry, what's that? I think we had three days where we uh, 
redesigned the procedure like four different ways to optimize four different things. Right. And then we went back to the original plan. So, so you spent three years writing a plan and then three days rewriting it when, when life gave you something different than what you thought you were going to get. Yes. That sounds a little bit like mission control to me. The only thing that ended up being different is that we ended up exactly sending all the commands that the crew would have been sending from the laptop. We ended up sending them from the ground, which we had to figure out on the fly, how to communicate that to the astronauts to for them to know, okay, now we send this command, so you're ready to do this. So this was something that we just came up with the day of and wow. executed it. And, it and again, you say we had to talk to the crew, but of course you didn't even have to talk to the crew. You talked to your robo, robo talks to flight, flight says Capcom, send it. Capcom talks to the crew that, so it, you know, it, it, what, what you just said sounds pretty straightforward, but I'm guessing it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And, and, and that point actually touches on the fact that there was a there was a large distributed team as part of this effort. And 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 actually that's just within the robotics effort. We had, you know, what, what is called a MER, the mission evaluation room, which is the, yes. the real-time engineering support organization. That was staffed with folks from engineering. Um, SPAR had become MDA, McDonald Detweiler at that point. They had two different teams of folks who were down also in mission control, um, ready to consult with us if there were questions that came up. Uh, but I, there was one thing that's an interesting adjustment. You asked, what's it like to work in mission control? One thing I remember having to get used to is the fact is knowing that so many people are listening to you work. <laughs> and it's not like you're reading a script, right? We are, no. in many cases, figuring things out, answering questions to which we did not know the answer, and going through that thought process. And a lot of people are listening to us. Only some of what we knew. Yeah, well, and, and I said that last episode, there's no such thing as a private loop well, in MCC. Yeah. It, it certainly wasn't uncommon for Flight and Capcom to be listening to the conversation between back and front room. So they heard the whole analysis. Um, it you know, still happens front, today. Yep. I'm sure it yep. does. I'm sure it does. Um, Matthew. So, so that you were, you were just watching all of that unfold and it didn't scare you away. So that's good. Um, what, what kind of, you know, what were you doing when you, when you finally uh, got to take a chair for real, what kind of stuff were we doing now that we had an arm on orbit and a space station that we were building? Well, it came, it came right after. I was only observer for 6A, but I was already certified. So as soon as, as at that assembly mission where the Canon-RM2 arrived, then we started shifting our focus to um, the, the next mission that was going to see the first assembly operations from the Canon-RM2. That's when the uh, airlock, the Quest airlock would be delivered and then installed. Uh, so we were... I think it was going to happen like just three or four months later. In the interim, we were doing, going through the um, the commissioning, so, so the right. to make sure that everything was working well. And um, I think since everything we knew was based on what we had learned on the shuttle, yeah. we were expecting very busy shuttle periods. And then in between shuttle periods, things would be very quiet where we can like catch our breath. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, very soon we realized that there was there would no never be any time for catching your breath because. Really? The robotic arm staying on orbit. We had to do a number of tests. Uh, then someone they quickly realized that 
we had the only set of external cameras uh, on the space station. Yes, yes. So they would they kept asking us to look at a bunch of different things. Um, of course, we were we were used to the uh, a way of operating where we would ask the astronauts to do certain things. But you know, when the arm was in the right position, we would be the the flight director turned to us and say, "Hey, Robo, can you please orient the cameras?" to see this yes and we had never do that so very timidly we started panning and tilting cameras um we had not really developed uh so so you you actually it. controlled your own cameras because because when i wanted to control the camera i had to talk to inko and, and he actually had to send the commands but but on on station you actually could actually flip the switch and move the camera yourself absolutely we did uh we didn't have the the the, the same tools to do it as efficiently as we do now so we would send a command going okay we'll send the pan left command yes. and then try to quickly queue up the stop pan command. stop command yes. and then you'd have to realize okay what's the delay and then you'd you'd yeah, overshoot yeah, yeah. and then you'd get a little more proficient and then you'd some someone would ask you could you now zoom in please it's like, yes. oh my goodness so then you zoom in and of course then the focus call would would come and then it would be it would be very laborious and then you have an entire flight control room looking at the big screen of what you're what right. you're the view you're right. providing and then you know silently screaming focus focus and you're right. trying desperately to do so and, and so you're, just, yeah. you're caught up in that and then you look up at the screen and realize that what you've been focusing focusing on is a piece of structure that's not on the planant with you uh <laughs> and it takes exactly. it on a slightly different dimension and that really brought it home. Uh, but just an example that uh, we started doing a lot more things and um, the the period in between shuttle missions quickly became just as busy as shuttle missions themselves, where constantly we would be, um, the, the robo pager, remember like we're talking about the early 2000s. So we, yes. we're still carrying pagers, was like this, this kind of um, contaminated thing where no one wanted to touch it because whoever held the pager would be summoned yes. to deal yeah. with some problem. So you weren't, did, was there someone, there wasn't somebody permanently sitting at the robo desk at that point? That's correct. And, and I, Tim could uh, could talk about it. That was even, that was something new because if you ask flight directors, they would have loved to have a robo on console around right. the clock, but that right. really would not, could not support that. Yeah, there, there weren't enough of us. I mean, for that first mm. month in between 5.8.1, which was in March, mid-March of 2001, and then April 19th, Flight 6A launch with the arm on board. For that month, most of that period, I was the only certified robo. Right. And and I was, as it turned out, there were so few of us, not only could we not have enough people to go staff console, but except when we needed to be there, but also most of us are filling key roles on upcoming assembly flights. In well, many cases, several of those flights. So right. um, after 5A.1, I worked on console for 6A, on console for 7A. I was the lead for 7A.1, which was in August of 2001. I was also going to be the lead for utilization flight two, which was the following June 2002. Um, right. So, yeah, you needed a small army. And even by the launch of flight 6A in April of 20, uh, 2001, there were three certified robos. And three is not enough to go around the clock for any amount of no, time. No, 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 no. More no. than a couple of weeks if you're lucky, if everybody stays healthy. Right. So, uh, like I said, we could go on for a while talking about the early days. But it, but one of the things I really did want to talk about was how uh, things have changed. Because what you describe as the way that it worked, 
all being in the room with the flight director and and working out of Houston uh, and those first tentative steps where you're actually sending commands to something on orbit. Um, that's not at all the way that that mission control is done now. And and um, you know, Danielle, you're. <laughs> You were saying before we started, you were working in mission control this morning. Um, you know, what is it like? What is it like today? Compare today doing the job of a mission controller to what it was like, uh, you know, 25 years ago. I would say it's completely different. And most of it is because we now have ground control. So um, back in the early 2000s, we realized that asking astronauts to take time to actually fly the arm was taking time that they don't have. Uh, so at first, when we started proposing uh, controlling the robotics from the ground, a lot of people thought that that was crazy talk and that was never going to yes. happen. Yes. But uh, we were able to convince enough people and go through like all the safety meetings we needed to to let us do very limited ground control. So at first it was only, you know, you could only move five feet at a time in this right, single right. command and things like that. And through the years, uh, we were able to like whittle down all of the constraints. And nowadays, the only things that the astronauts control with the arm are for uh, when uh, cargo vehicles that cannot automatically dock the space station when they arrive. Right and right. they're caught with Canadarm2, that's done by the astronauts. But the second the capture is complete, they give us control, and we're the ones that are installing really? that vehicle on space station. Really? So, so, you, even, so literally all of the extravehicular robotics yeah. are now done from the ground. Exactly. So it's that that they do, and they, do, um, they control the arm when there's an EVA at the end of the arm. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, that so that's sense. the only two things where the astronauts are in control of the arm. The rest of the time, it's done from the ground. Well, that that is different. Uh, and you know, certainly at the time that I was at MCC, not an eventuality that anyone would have, would have anticipated. Um, the running joke on this show that um, the way you get to space is by going to a lot of meetings. Uh, and and I'm willing to bet that there were a lot of meetings about ground control where they're not, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 there were. I mean, it was a long, it was a long process. And and what Danielle just said about whittling away, it wasn't just whittling away resistance because we were especially good persuasive car salesmen. Um, the way you convince people was to demonstrate that it could be done. So we would yes. be allowed to do a fairly simple, a very simple, you know, small step, small maneuver as. as Danielle said, a few feet at a time with all these constraints in place. And we gradually show that, in fact, the, the constraints can be relaxed because there is there are processes in place to ensure that it happens in the right way. So you, demonst you demonstrate, and that's part of that evolution. So now we have, and actually, even more recently, they've expanded the capabilities so that free-flying cargo vehicles like the Cygnus vehicle are undocked from the ground and then released from the ground and they open the end effector yeah. and it kind of falls out well, and and it's also you know we talked a little bit about this one before we started matthew it's also that you know by the time you're doing this you're not the new guys anymore i mean I, i'm willing to bet daniel danielle's got more time in mcc than most of the people that work there regardless of of what their passport says um 
you know, by the time you're doing this ground control stuff, you're you're not the Canadians anymore. You're you're part of the of the team, right? Absolutely. And one thing that's always been very impressive is how much um, the we were talking about a joint team. How much NASA embraced the Canadian contingent within within its its midst, and um, and in return, the Canadian flight controllers were completely dedicated to their job. So Canadians, Americans. Um, Really, if you look at it, because typically a, a flight control team, a robotics flight control team shift is three flight controllers at the same time. And sometimes you'd have a mix of Americans and Canadians. Sometimes you'd have an all Canadian team. And and really, when came, when the time came to uh, assign teams, there was never a consideration of, oh, we have to have our, you know, right, Canadian right. You don't need a Canadian nature. on every shift or something silly like that. Absolutely. Right. Well, I'll take credit for having broken them in because I was <laughs> I was the Canadian working in MCC, even though I wasn't a I wasn't a mission controller. But but uh, you know they at least got used to someone with a Canadian accent. Um, but Danielle, now the other big change is you know when you had when you did this in the beginning, you you had to move to Houston, but you don't work in Houston anymore. But you work in mission control, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we now have a control room at CSA that Matthew and I helped. Uh, Put together and certify for you. So that's that got certified back in 2004. So Matthew and I both moved back to Canada in order to finalize that room, uh, do all kinds of sims and tests to make sure that room could be trusted to be a back room for robotics. And that room is actually considered to be part of Mission Control Center Houston. So yeah, we've been operating from there since 2004. Uh, it was known as the remote Mipser. It's so Mipser yes, is basically I remember, back I remember those days. I remember those days. It's still technically called that, but now Robo can sit there. So it also wow. has front room capability nowadays. Right. And, and that's another really big change, I think, is that um, even the idea of having another control room, of, of having flight controllers, mission controllers in a room that were not in the room with the flight director. I mean, NASA had to do that a little on the phase one program with Mir because they had to work with the Russians. But but since then, I mean, controlling the space station is an international control team, not just an international space station, right, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So when we started off, it was very gently, we say we'll work a, an easy shift and uh, commanding, and we really had to move up gradually. I think it was a, we supported a year's worth of operations before we supported our first space really? shuttle mission from the, uh, from, from probably from lots of sims before that. A, a, a lot of sims. And um, I think it, it was even the, like, in a, it was the first flight control room in addition to the ones at the Johnson Space Center and at the uh, and in Russia so we were the first like real international uh, partner joining so in. Num so number th number three in space again <laughs> okay yeah absolutely you can say that and uh, and but really it um, progressively we demonstrated we built confidence you know right. uh, and then right. we had like not only one shuttle shift but we had like two two shuttle shifts yeah. over tw 10 days um, you know, the same thing happened with ground control at first. It's, well, let's see how it goes. But ultimately, it always materializes that, you know, once you've had the opportunity and the skill, you just demonstrate it. So, Danielle, nowadays, when you're working at MCC, how many different places on the planet are there mission controllers on a shift that you're on? Um, 
Wow. It's kind of hard to, to think of all of it. Well, there's Japan. There's a control center also uh, in Europe for the Columbus module. Right. But if you look at the ship that we had this morning, on top of that, uh, we still have a Cygnus vehicle attached to the vehicle, which means right. that there's a Cygnus control center. Right. Uh, we have a dragon that left, uh, you know, about an hour ago from the space station. So you have the right. dragon control center that's uh, in California that was up and running. There's a control center for the payloads in Huntsville. So... It's a lot of people working together. Well, it and and that is one thing, you know, certainly my experience of mission control was it was a very tight team and a very tight culture. I mean, it was was not an easy place to break into. Um, and, and that's, you know, what I think was really interesting about the time, particularly Tim, when you arrived, that you were you were really the first wave of of people who who, you know, NASA accepted that this had to happen, but but it, it wasn't something that there weren't doubts about, right? I mean, this, you know, this this was not the way flight control was going to be as far as people thought. They knew things were going to change, but I don't think anybody realized how much they were going to change. I mean, there were a lot of assumptions on our part as well as on our partners' parts uh, about the way we were going to be working that that ended up changing from those, from those yeah. early baseline assumptions. Uh, that evolution started with people coming here, becoming part of a team, working incredibly hard, uh, right. being becoming known and trusted components of the organization, and then producing. We, we the Canadians, were focused. Although we, we did, uh, we spent time watching shuttle missions to learn and observe. Um, our work was focused entirely on space station. So right. we were we were able to take leadership roles in a lot of those early product developments for the robotics and became became known trusted players on the team. So when they had a question about commands and telemetry or flight rules or all the different things in which we were able to specialize, that we became the go-to people, part of that we we sometimes use the term badgeless there were mm. yes three or four different kinds of badge the 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 IDs that we wear here on site present in the robotics flight control team and were really appreciated the fact that it didn't really matter which badge you were wearing who was the expert on this yeah and that, and that's the thing is that even though it's not you know, it's not not what people thought mission control was going to be like, people who'd grown up in it. But it wouldn't be fair to say that there was actually a lot of resistance. I mean, I think it's really been welcomed. The way it's ended up is the way that everybody wants it to be because it works, right? It, it, everyone, what, what everyone wants it to be, not necessarily what everyone expected it to be. But once you get into a situation, everyone would see, oh, well, that worked. Well, OK, I guess we can I guess we can make that more normal. And well, that well, the, that then allows us to do this other more expansive thing. So it's it everybody learned together. I mean, when we started out at the you know at the, in the very beginning, um, Expedition Two back in two thousand one, even the NASA ops plan planning processes processes were changing weekly and monthly. They were learning themselves how you operate a vehicle 
continuously. That's right. 24 7, that's 365 right. forever. And, and, you know, there's so much to talk about. We haven't even talked about the changes in technology from the days of, of P tubes uh, and chart recorders to, to, to where we are today. But I think, you know, I do, I just have one more question I want to ask everybody. I'm going to ask Tim first. So Danielle and Matthew have time to think about it. <laughs> I'll put Tim on the spot first, but um, uh, what, if you had to pick one, one moment uh, centered around mission control over the last 25 years, that's really, you know, your favorite recollection, the thing that, 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 you know, when you sit back in your chair and go, geez, that was great. Um, what do you think of as, as a time in MCC that really, that, that really, you, you know, you, you're glad you were there? Well, I, um, th that's actually a more difficult question to answer. I mean, yes, it, I, I, I will produce a moment here in a, in a, in a minute, but, <laughs> uh, frankly, the whole experience having been able to come here and do this. What a totally unexpected thing for three Canadians yes. to get to do yes. and to yes. be welcomed into the inner sanctum of the inner sanctum of human spaceflight yes. and get yes. to do this and command the vehicle and talk to the crew in space, which we've had the opportunity to do. Um, really? It's to get to be here and do this and be part of the space station assembly process in a vital way. I mean, it's been said, uh, Chris Hadfield said it a few times, I know, in the media. Canadarm2 built the ISS. And you know what it yes. really did? It really and did. to get to be part of that as a contributing team member, that was tremendous. Um, for my own self, um, in June of 2002, uh, the flight I was lead robo on, we had an early issue on one of the joints of the Canadarm2. And we had to plan to replace it in space. They did that on a spacewalk and they replaced the wrist roll joint of the arm. And ha at the end of that spacewalk, when the arm powered up, that was a really good feeling, I remember for me, because there oh, had man. been an extraordinary oh, effort. And again, so much at stake, right? Because if the arm goes offline, the whole space station assembly process yes. is going to grind yes. to a halt. So, you know, no pressure, guys. But yeah. to get through that with the whole team, that was one moment of a million moments of, of yeah. this great, uh, this great experience of partnership. And, and, and I'll say, you know, uh, as you say, Chris has said the Canadarm2 built the space station, but, but more to the point, as you guys have described, Canada helped build the space station because you guys have all been part of a process of learning how to do this thing that the world didn't know how to do 25 years ago. And just the fact that it's changed so much in 25 years is evidence of the fact that no one knew how to do this job 25 years ago. And Canada was instrumental in helping NASA, you know, learn how to do distributed flight control, learn how to do ground control, learn all of the things that have become part of being a modern mission control center. You know, Canada very much helped invent that and, and earlier than almost other the, all of the other international partners. And I, I, I do think that's something that we should be proud of. Yeah, we were really blessed um, as a Canadian space agency by having the arm fly relatively early in the assembly sequence. Yes, we were yeah. there and, and at the table. To it. Yeah, 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 there at the table in 2001. Um, our European and Japanese partners flew their modules in, I think, 2008. So we had years of experience at the at the flight readiness table, at the program decision table, right, right, right. being being there. Right. And again, it, it, a, a, a blessing and an opportunity. 
going to all the meetings. Uh, yeah. Matthew, what's your favorite moment? Oh, that's that's a very difficult question because, as Tim says, there are so many. I'll I'll go more the poetic way. So it had been, I think, it was around circa 2015. We yes. had done about a 10-hour shift of uh, ground control operations. I, I had traveled down to Houston to work out of the uh, front room, which has beautiful front screens, like of a yes, resolution that's really oh, fantastic. And um, we had, you know, after like about a shift was about. 10 hours, right? So after 10 hours of worrying about sending the next command, you know, maintaining clearances and making sure that you keep a good yeah. eye on the arm. Yeah. We had finished everything, resolved all the, you know, minute anomalies. And then we were just moving towards the last maneuver of the arm to its its toe position where we keep it out of the way until the next use. And um, in the background of the arm, as the arm was flying through its last maneuver, you could see the ground and um, it flew right over the uh, Manicouagan crater in northern Quebec, which is really? the only structure, the only structure in the in the world I can recognize from orbit. <laughs> and I went, oh my god, that's there! And I and I was working with, I think one of my uh, backroom officers was from was actually operating from Canada, yeah. and then from being identified to identify the being able to locate the crater, then you can work out, okay, eastern Quebec, New Brunswick, yes. Nova Scotia, yes. and the rest of the Maritimes, and it sort of brought home the fact that wow, we're this is pretty cool. And yeah. I can't that, articulate that it any better. It was, it was, I really enjoyed that moment. Now, Danielle, you've spent more time in mission control than the three of us put together, probably. Um, what's your favorite moment? I don't know if I have one. It's been, I've been doing this over 20 years as a certified flight controller. It's, yes. it's kind of, you know, like asking me to pick a favorite child at this point. Uh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, I, wanna, I, I can tell you what's my favorite type of operation, though, sure, uh, that sure, we do. Sure. Uh, we've talked a lot about the uh, the Canada Arm 2, the big arm, but uh, one system that's very interesting, very important, that uh, only flew up in 2008, so that came later, is the uh, Special Purpose Dextrous Manipulator, SPM, or Dexter, which is our two-armed robot that operates a at the arm of Canon Arm 2, uh, which is meant to do maintenance on the space station and develop payloads and things like that. So I would say that my favorite type of operation are contact operations with SPDM where we get to change out boxes and oh, things wow. like that. So that's something that I think that out of the team, uh, well, Matthew was still around when we started doing SPDM ops, but it's really, gone up over the years so okay. that's uh something that that would be my favorite when we get to do that and we've only been able to do that with a robo in canada since uh january of 2020 so wow. it's so still it's still fairly every, new every shift it's still it's still changing um guys this this has been a real pleasure for me and i think it will be a real treat for terranauts listeners there's so much more we could have talked about if if we get a chance uh, would you guys mind coming back and having some more conversations about what it's like to work in space, even if you don't have to leave your house to do it? Absolutely. Guys come yes. back and, and I do would that. love to say the word. All right. All right. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Tim Braithwaite, Danielle Cormier, Matthew Caron. Thanks very much for spending time with us on Terranauts today. That's it for now. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.